Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I pray that you do. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I also just want to just uh, say to our college students that are here, thanks so much for being with us. You're a blessing to me. I love to hear you sing. I love to watch you worship. Um, years ago, Melissa and I led the college ministry at our church where we served in Gainesville for a few years. And it was one of the sweetest times of our ministry just being able to teach that small group and invest in those college students. Some of them we married, some of them we ordained to the gospel ministry, some of them are serving all over the world today. And so I don't know what God has in store for you, but I'm looking forward to what God's going to do. Thank you for being here. Pray for our college ministry. Pray that God would grant us favor um, as we just seek to minister uh, to that uh, demographic. Um, I can tell you this, your moms and dads are blessed that you're in church today, trust me. Uh, they have been praying for that, um, like I do for my college kids. And so anyway, uh, we're blessed to be able to minister to you. There's a phrase in Latin, many of you have probably heard, some of you may be very familiar with it, is the phrase magnum opus. Now you and I translate that in English as masterpiece. The definition of masterpiece or magnum open is this, a work of outstanding creativity, skill, or workmanship. It is a designation that is reserved for a very limited number of works of art. I want to just share with you some different works of art that are considered um, to be masterpieces, to be a magnum opus, okay? You're familiar with some of these. First, uh, Michelangelo's the Sistine Chapel, a masterpiece. His sculpture of David, a masterpiece. Da Vinci's Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, a masterpiece. Uh, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night, a masterpiece. Now, you've seen all these works of art, whether you realize it or not, because they're very popular and, and, and you've seen them in different ways, but they are masterpieces of, of, of art. In literature, Share with you some. Beowulf, maybe you've read Beowulf. Uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. All masterpieces of literature. In music, uh, Handel's Messiah, a masterpiece. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5. Chopin's Nocturne in E-flat, Mendelssohn's Hebrides Overture, Mozart's Serenade Number no. 13. Now, you may not know those pieces by that name, but you've heard them. They're very popular. You've heard them in weddings. You've heard them in movies. You've heard them in different places. Masterpieces of music. Each of those works of art are unlike any other. They are, they are head and shoulders above anything else in that genre. There's nothing like it. They'll never be replicated. There'll never be another starry night. There'll never be another Sistine Chapel. They, they, they are masterpieces. In Genesis chapter 1 in verses 1 through 25, the Bible shows us this incomparable, this unparalleled creativity and workmanship and skill of God in creation. However, up to this point, we haven't seen God's magnum opus. We haven't seen God's masterpiece. We haven't seen God's very best. 
We don't get to see that until verse 26 of chapter 1. And we're going to begin there today. We're going to begin to study the masterpiece of God, the pinnacle of God's creation, His magnum opus. And you ready? You know what it is? It's you and me. It's humanity. We are the best of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are unlike any other part of God's creation. We stand head and shoulders above the rest of God's creation And we're going to see that this morning. So, let's dive into that. If you're physically able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to begin in verse 26 of chapter 1, and we're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 2. And so, God's Word says this. Then God said, we're we're on day, uh, the, the halfway through the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great privilege you've given us to come together as the body of Christ and to sing your praises today, Lord. Thank you for the blessing you've given us to encourage and edify one another And Lord, now, thank you for this opportunity you've given us to study your word together. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Work in every heart and every mind in this place, including my own, Lord, and just draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The master, the masterpiece of creation. Here's the, go ahead and have a seat, I'm sorry. Yeah. Or you can stand the whole time, whatever you'd like to do, okay? Um. Here's the first thing if you're following along in your notes. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. Verses 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Man is far more than the most complex and the most organized of living beings. There is something infinitely greater and distinct about humanity that's not true of the rest of creation. And that distinction is that only you and I are created in the image and likeness of God. Only man resembles God. Only man has the characteristics of God. And we'll get into what that means in just a moment. And church, I just want to remind you, this is why we value life. This is why life is precious. This is why we fight for life. This is why we treasure life 
and, and hold it in such high esteem because we understand that man is created in the image and likeness of God. We understand that, that, that there is something infinitely greater of worth and value in us than any other part of creation. That, that, that's why as men and women who know Christ as Savior, we value and we cherish and we fight for life. Life at all stages, in utero and under hospice care, it makes no difference. We, we fight for life. We want to see life valued, and we want to see life protected, and we want to see life tre- cherished and treasured because it is created in the image and likeness of God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in God's image and according to His likeness? Here's the first thing, if you're following along in your notes. We possess the attributes of personality. We possess the attributes of personality like God does. What, what do I mean by personality? What do we mean when we use that statement? We're referring to the ability to reason, to think abstractly, to express emotions in a will. For example, the various pieces of art I mentioned, Van Gogh's Starry Night or Handel's Messiah or Beowulf and other things, the, the, those beautiful masterpieces that I mentioned, listen, they were possible because those men and those individuals that were, were gifted and, and were given that ability to express emotions and creativity and imagination because they are created in the image and likeness of God. It's something different about us. Listen, we, we, man walked on the moon because we have the capacity to, to use reason and logic and solve problems and interpret data and, and to organize our thoughts. Listen, there's not an animal anywhere in the world, nor has there been, nor will ever be, that could, that, that could build the Golden Gate Bridge or the ancient pyramids of Egypt or the Great Wall of China. Why can't they? Because they don't have the personality that God has. They can't think abstractly. They can't reason and use logic to solve a problem. Man has that unique ability because man's created in the image and likeness of God. The second thing that it means is we possess the attributes of morality. We possess the attributes of morality. Only mankind has an innate understanding of right and wrong, of good and evil. Regardless if it's written in a piece of legislation or not, you and I know right from wrong. You and I know uh, good and evil. There is a moral compass that is a part of the human nature that no other living being possesses. Cats and dogs know, know right from wrong, good from evil. They, they're just, they, they, they are learned by conditioning. But not us. We know right from wrong. We know good and evil. Let let me just share with you a few verses of Scripture from Romans chapter 1. And you see kind of this thread. You see this truth uh, being being borne out in these verses. All right, look with me beginning in verses 18 and 19 from Romans 1. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So think about this. You and I can't suppress the truth if we're not aware that there is a truth. But we are aware of truth. We know right from wrong. 
But what do we choose to do? We choose to suppress it. We choose to sweep it under the rug. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For, 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 for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And so we make a conscious decision not to glorify God as God. Okay? That's a decision that we make. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Well, how do we exchange the truth of God for a lie? We can't do that if we don't know the truth, if we don't know right from wrong. Verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. And so we have in our mind this ability to not acknowledge the Lord. Well, where does that come from? It comes from you and I knowing and understanding right from wrong, good from evil. Verse 32, here's the last one. Although they know God's just sentence, that there is a consequence to this mindset and behavior, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who do them. So we know and we understand there is an innate moral compass as part of the human being that we know right from wrong, good from evil. And that moral compass exists because we are created in the image and likeness of God. Third and finally, we possess the capacity to enjoy communion with God. We possess the capacity to enjoy communion with God. The Bible teaches us that man is made for a relationship with God. And that communion, that relationship is intended to be eternal. And hold on to that statement because we're going to come back to it. It is God's intention that our relationship with him be an eternal one. Here's what's so very interesting. Up to verse 25 of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible primarily accounts for creation. But beginning in verse 26, there is a transition. No longer is it about creation, but it is about the relationship between God and man. And from verse 26 of chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22, that's what the Bible is primarily about, the relationship between God and man. And God's purpose and God's goal and God's pleasure is that you and I would know him in a personal relationship, that we would worship him and that we would serve him. Now, because it's in the text, we're going to look at this because, unfortunately, we need to in our culture today. Look with me at verse 27. As we talk about being created in the image and likeness of God, look what God's Word says to us. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. <laughs> we live in a really mixed-up, crazy age, don't we? And this whole idea, this, this whole new genre of thinking called gender dysphoria that didn't exist just a few years ago, all right? We, we've created this interesting dynamic that we live in, and the Bible answers it very succinctly and simply. The Bible is very clear. The Bible is crystal clear that God created us male and female. That's it. There are only two genders, male and female. 
In the next two minutes, I'm going to give you a lesson in biology, genetics, and I'll just reveal to you how easy this is, okay? Gender is determined at the moment of conception by the combination of X and Y sex chromosomes a baby receives from the egg and the sperm. All eggs contain one X chromosome, while sperm contain either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. Embryos with XY chromosomes develop male sex organs, while those with two X chromosomes develop female sex organs. It's that simple. There it is. So at the moment of conception, you are either a man or a woman, male or female. There it is. And it's so interesting to me that Scripture makes this so simple and yet, Scripture also reminds us that maleness and femaleness are good and meaningful, just as all other aspects of God's creation are good and meaningful. Men are not women, and women are not men. We are different by design. And listen, that difference is wonderful. It is a really good thing. It is a good thing. Men are superior to women at being men, and women are superior to men at being a woman. And we should celebrate that. We should rejoice in that, for that's how God's made us. And listen to me, no matter what you and I do, no matter any decision we might make, any therapy we might engage in, or whatever it may be, you're either male or female, and you'll always be male or female, and that's it. For that's how God's designed this to work. We are created in the image and likeness of God. Next, man is given dominion over all the earth and all the animals. In verse 26, the latter half, he says, They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verses 28 through 31. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning the sixth day. Man is given this great authority, but is also this great responsibility to govern, to rule over the earth and all that was created and placed on it. The earth and all that it contains, listen carefully, was created for our use, for our purposes, and for our enjoyment, not the other way around. God's creation is there for us to enjoy and for us to use. In verses 28 through 31, God says, look, look at all I've given you, all the food I've provided for you to, to, to keep you alive. It's yours. Enjoy it. <laughs> Enjoy it. In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist rejoices in this truth. Look with me at these verses in verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 8. Referring to man, he says, You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, 
all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. And then to celebrate this truth, look what the psalmist says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. It is a good thing. We, we ought to rejoice how God has given us authority and responsibility and stewardship over his creation. And with that authority and with that responsibility, we, we, we do want to manage God's creation rightly. We want to take care of God's creation. We don't, we don't want to abuse it, and we don't want to just have one disregard for it. We, we manage it, and we take care of it. Let, let me tell you tell you who understands this more than anybody else, farmers. Whether you're an agriculture farmer or you farm animals, ask any farmer. They will talk to you about how important it is to be a good steward, to be responsible over creation. For they know and understand better than anybody else. If you don't take care of it, you won't have anything. And so God's given, this great, given us this great authority and responsibility to be good stewards of his creation and it's for our good, it's for our use and our enjoyment. Let's keep going. Man is given the function of procreation. Look at verses 27 and then 28. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so God has allowed for the procreation of humanity through the union of one man and one woman in this wonderful and this beautiful design that God calls marriage. And that's how God defines marriage. He defines marriage as the covenant union between one man and one woman for life. And in that union, in that beautiful and wonderful relationship called marriage, God has called us to procreate, to fill the earth. And that's marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we see this borne out. Let me just remind you of the background here. Beginning in verse 20, it says, The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. No helper was found suitable for him. No helper was found like him. No helper was found that, that, that could, could be a part of this, could be in relationship with man. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now look with me. Read with me beginning in verse 23. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This wonderful, this beautiful, mysterious, magical union called marriage. God takes a man and God takes a woman from two different backgrounds. Maybe two different stories and two different with two entirely different personalities and their, their gifts and their, their strengths and their weaknesses are entirely different. And God brings them together in holy matrimony, in this wonderful union, and they become one. 
And it's inexplainable, isn't it? It's hard to explain what God does in marriage. But it's wonderful, and it's incredible. And why is it so? Because that's how God's created it. And so in marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. And God said, this is the union. This is the design for which I want you to procreate. Jesus would, would teach the very same truth. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees are coming to him, and they, they, their question is related to divorce. For divorce had been greatly abused in the Jewish culture. And so they came to him and, and wanted, to un, you know, wanted to understand what he believed about divorce. And so he takes this opportunity not only to answer that question, but to remind us of marriage. And he says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. And so God takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, and then Jesus adds this, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage, this beautiful and wonderful, mysterious and magical union that God does when he brings one man and one woman together, and they become one flesh. Let's keep going. So man is given the function of procreation. Next, man is given rest from his work. Look with me at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. So what do we have here? Over six days, God creates all of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rests. God doesn't do anything that we're aware of. So was it that God was tired? Was it that God was exhausted? Was it that God was indifferent? And the answer to all of those questions is an emphatic no. So why did God rest? God rested as an example for you and I to follow. God rested on the seventh day. He declared that day to be holy. And the design is this, that you and I would rest and you and I would worship. That you and I would take time out of our busy schedule. We would stop what we were doing. We would take time to worship and celebrate the God of the universe and who he is and all that he's done. And likewise, we would rest from our labors. Listen, there are some of you in this room who need to rest. Your calendar is too full. There is too much going on in your world. And you need to unplug and rest. Listen to me. I learned this a long time ago. Are you ready? Whatever it is you have in front of you that you think can't wait, listen, it'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Some of your children need to rest. They're entirely too busy. They're chasing grandkids in 42 different directions. They need to learn to rest. God gave us rest for our good, for our emotional good, for our physical health, and more importantly, for our spiritual health. We need to rest and we need to worship. Now, we're no longer under the Sabbath law that we worship on the seventh day, Saturday. 
We worship on Sunday in honor of the resurrection of our Savior, the first day of the week. But the principle is still true. God gave us rest for our good. There are times when you need to just sit down, prop your feet up, and do nothing. And that's entirely okay. You need to rest. And we need to worship. God's given us rest. And the example he gives us, and he gives us that example here in Genesis chapter 2. So, in several different ways I have commented on the truth that God created us, that we might know him, that we might worship him, that we might serve him. That is God's great purpose for your life and my life. It is God's great purpose for the life of your children or grandchildren or whoever it may be that they would know the Lord and they would worship the Lord. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French mathematician, some of you are familiar with him, he made a statement that we have paraphrased in this way. And I quote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man. You and I are created in the image and likeness of God. And until we know God in a right relationship, that vacuum, that emptiness will always exist. It's true of every human being. There's something in us that longs for more. There's something in us that knows there's more to life than just what's in front of us. And here's the challenge that all of us have. Are you ready? We try to fill that void. We try to fill that vacuum with all sorts of things. Let me give you some examples. We try to fill that vacuum with professional success. I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm going to to get to the top. And when I do, I'm going to be happy. When I do, I'm going to be fulfilled. When I do, the emptiness will leave me. Or we try to fill it with money. The more money I can accumulate, the greater my purpose will be. Or I'm going to fill it with relationships, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife. I'm going to try to fill it with, with, with... physical pleasure, that, that's going to make me happy and content and fulfilled. Or I'm going to fill it with athletics, or I'm going to fill it with education. I'm going to fill it with any number of things, popularity, what, you name it. Fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. But mankind is always trying to fill that void, that vacuum. The only problem is we can't fill it. And every one of us, we could stand up and give testimony in this room of how we've, we've pursued everything the world says to pursue. We've tried to fill that vacuum with all the world says is important, and yet we're still empty. We're still discontent. We're still not fulfilled. Why is that? Well, let me finish Pascal's quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. The reason Pascal referred to it as a God-shaped vacuum, because he had come to that realization, he had come to that understanding that the only thing that could fill the emptiness and void of his life is Jesus Christ. And what was true in his life in the 17th century was true in Genesis chapter 2 and is true today. 
as a result of being created in the image and likeness of God, until we fill that void with Christ, you and I will continue to search for meaning and purpose. We will continue to search for fulfillment and contentment and joy in all the wrong people, places, and things. It can only be filled by Jesus Christ, God's Son, who died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, who was buried in a borrowed tomb, who rose from the dead to guarantee us, are you ready for this? Eternal relationship with the Father. Remember what I said we were created for earlier? Eternal communion with the Father. And that is available only through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you again for this opportunity to, to worship you in song and in fellowship and in the study of your word. Father God, I ask and pray that if there's any individual in this room today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, any individual who hasn't surrendered in faith to your son, Jesus Christ, that today, that today, Lord, they would humble themselves before you and say yes to Jesus. That they would begin to live life on purpose with you. Lord Jesus, have your way in this place. Move and work like only you can for your glory and for your honor. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to